Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Here you go. Here you go. The end of June? Is it really possible we're heading toward the end of June? Yes, it is. This is nothing personal. We've got the mailbag pod. For those who don't know what this is, if you go on Apple Podcasts, and I'm appreciative however you download and subscribe to Nothing Personal, whatever platform you use, whether it's Spotify or Stitcher, any of the others. But if you're on Apple, if you wouldn't mind rating, five stars, of course, reviewing, and if you put a question into your review, I will try to get to it Because at the end of every month, I will do a mailbag pod. I tried talking about it during other Nothing Personal shows, and I say mailbag pod, mail pod bag. But this is where you ask questions, and I'm just going to give you the answers because you want them. So I just want to get right into it because this is a busy show. Great questions for June. Thank you again. As you know, I appreciate your loyalty. Nothing personal. The mailbag pod. How can a scout predict prospect performance when they have never used a wooden bat? This question intrigued me because it was the question when I got into baseball. was one of the first questions I asked of our head amateur scout. The way scouting works in baseball is you've got pro scouts, Their responsibility is to cover major league organizations. They go from single A all the way up to the major league team. They, let's say that you've got a a scout who has the AL East. They're responsible to give you reports on every team, Yankees, Blue Jays, Red Sox, Rays, Orioles, from their major league team all the way down to their minor leagues. Then you have a report of every one of those players And that is used by the GM when it comes time for trades. That is used by the major league staff when it comes time to play that team. In addition to pro scouts, you have advanced scouts. Those are scouts who actually scout the team that you are going to be playing next. So if you're in a series with Atlanta and you're moving on to Washington, when you're in Atlanta, the scout is out watching the Nationals play, preparing an entire scouting report for the team you're about to play. Amateur scouts are just that. Those are people who are incredibly underpaid. They are on the road 270 days a year in a normal year. They go to places I've never heard of, to schools I'll never see, finding diamonds in the rough 
that are neither diamond nor rough. It used to be in the old days that it was like the Wild West. People were out trying to find players. There was no social media. There were no top 50 lists. There was no Baseball America top 100 prospects list, top amateurs. None of that existed. You had scouts out there trying to find Gina Davis and Lori Petty. Everybody was John Lovitz. That's a league of their own reference. If you don't get it, watch the damn movie. You see, it's the train moves and not the station, he says to Marla in a great line from League of Their Own. So these area scouts go and they go all over the country. They get assigned different regions. Obviously, your best amateur scouts get the most fertile regions, Florida, California, Texas. There's some scouts who get the Dakotas, Wyoming, not a lot of players come out of there, but when they do, they're pretty good. Just doesn't, they don't come often. And it's not that those scouts aren't as good. Maybe they live there. Maybe they have a home. Maybe they have a family there. Maybe they're a coach there because very often area scouts have to supplement their income. So I said to the scouts when I first got introduced to baseball in 1999, I said, listen, you know, you want to spend all this money on a high school player. I'm just not sure I understand. What are you looking for? Because in the big leagues, we play with wooden bats, and it's way harder to hit with a wooden bat than it is with an aluminum bat. So how is it possible that you can tell me that we should be giving half a million dollars to this 18-year-old when he looks scrawny, and all he does is ping a aluminum bat? And the answer I got is the same answer I got every year from 1999 until I left baseball in 2017. And it is the same answer that is given today. David, we're not listening for the ping. We're watching the swing plane. We're looking at the body. We're projecting size, strength, power, bat speed. It doesn't matter if we're scouting a player and he goes 0 for 5 or 5 for 5. Players don't realize that. They want to perform for the scouts. Those players don't realize, David, that we're not there to see them get five hits. We are looking totally differently than the way you think we're looking. We are using our best guess as to what this young man will be in four years. What kind of body he will have whether or not he's got soft hands. Does he have hard hands? How is he with the glove? With the aluminum bat, does he keep the bat in the zone longer? Does he have an upward swing plane, a downward swing plane? Does he have a repeatable swing? Does he have hitches in his swing? If he does have hitches, can they be fixed? Once we hand him over to player development, we need to make sure that the players we've scouted have the tools that the player development people, meaning the managers and the coaches in the minor leagues, all the way up to the big leagues, that they have something to work with. It's a fascinating question because then on the other side of that discussion, if you've got a player who goes to the Cape Cod League and performs in a wooden bat league, then the scouts say, listen, this guy can hit with wood. This guy's got good wood. And then I always say, well, wait a minute. I thought the wood doesn't matter. And then they say the wood always matters. But in the absence of wood, you go with the other stuff we've told you. So the way scouts predict prospect performance 
The best scouts see into the future better than the others. That's the best way I can answer it. It's not a science. It's an art. They've tried over the years to make it much more analytic. Analytics guys have gotten knee deep into scouting. I would take an eye scout over a computer scout any day. Because these eye scouts, they talk to the player. They don't get it right every time. We have drafted plenty of players who didn't work out, who couldn't translate aluminum to wood, who may have been okay with wood, but weren't okay once they had a chance to be in the big leagues because they weren't strong enough mentally. You get it wrong all the time. Baseball on the field is a huge game of failure. Scouting is just as large a job of failure as being a baseball player. If you have just started a position in baseball, the next question starts. What would you do to help yourself rise up in the organization? And should I negotiate my starting salary? I chose this question because I love it. I love people who ask that. I like helping people negotiate their salaries. I like people discussing their bonuses, their raises. I try to give you, the audience of nothing personal, information about how to deal with your bosses, when to ask for more, when to settle for what you're offered, when to beg, when to be confident, when to be thankful, when to be appreciative, and when to be questioning. That is the most important thing for your career is to have a feel, and not everyone has it, to have a feel of when to press certain buttons when you're dealing with your boss. What time of day? What day of the week? Is it in your boss's office? Is it in your cubicle? Is it outside the office? Is it over a drink? Is it with a written presentation? All good questions. So the specific question that you asked is, what would you do to help yourself rise up in the organization? You're not going to love my answer to this. In all of my years in business, from Wall Street to Main Street, the people who rise up in an organization are the very people who are not trying to rise up in the organization. Because if your sole focus is, let's say you are hired to be a baseball intern and you want to be a GM, and you are focused on becoming a GM, those interns never make it. And the reason they never make it is that they end up doing a worse job at being an intern because they've got their eyes on being the GM. Have you ever, let me give you a real world example outside of the job force. Have you ever tripped climbing up a ladder because you were looking at the step above versus the step that you're going to next? And then your foot doesn't catch and you sort of trip a little bit? Have you ever been looking forward and all of a sudden you don't see what's right in front of you and you trip a little bit. That happens in all organizations. And when you're a boss, you see it as clear as day. I know exactly which of our baseball organization employees or our finance employees or marketing employees or sales employees, I can scout them within a week as to who is going to be able to rise up. Here's a little hint for yourself. If you are not being asked to do extra work, you're not a candidate to rise up in your organization. If you are not counted on when there is an emergency in the office or when there's a problem to be solved, 
Even if you're not listened to or you give an opinion that is not followed, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you are not a part of the conversation and it doesn't mean direct with the GM, you could have a conversation with your direct report who is having the conversation with his direct report who's in the room with the GM. But if you're not in the loop of conversation, you are not a candidate to rise up in the organization. If you are not asked to participate in firm-wide meetings where the president of the team says to the baseball GM, you can invite the following 10 people, that is your allotment, to the winter meetings, to these organizational meetings, to this off-site meeting. If you are not in that group, you are not being looked at as someone who is rising up in the organization. Does that automatically mean that you should resign? Yeah. If you're a wussy, if you have no chance to be successful, and if you're ready to give up, get out of the way. But no, that's not what you should be doing. If you're not in the room where it happens, you work your ass off until you are asked to be in the room where it happens. Or you create your own room and you have things happen. If you're not happy to not be invited into a conversation, then start your own conversation. If you're not happy because you're not getting extra work and you think you're worthy of it, you go to your supervisor and ask for the extra work. When your supervisor says, well, wait a minute, aren't you busy doing what you're supposed to be doing? You say, I've got time to do it all. Let me do more. If your boss still does not give you more, that means he or she does not trust you and does not look at you as a rising star. And this is directly married to the question of, should you negotiate your own salary? Your specific question was, should I negotiate my starting salary? Here's my answer. How much experience do you have? Are you just starting off in baseball? Are you, did you submit your resume through the winter meetings, through an online portal? Are you there because of a connection, a family relationship, a favor, the child of someone who knows someone who has a relationship with someone else. If any of those are your reasons for your first job, which by the way, there's nothing wrong with any of them. That is using what you have to be successful. You don't negotiate your starting salary. When they offer you that you're going to be hourly at 15 bucks an hour, you say, I'm ready to start tomorrow. When they say, we're starting you at $25,000 a year, you say, I'm ready to start tomorrow. When it comes time to get paid every two weeks, you take your paycheck and you work harder. You do more. And if you're one of those people who's complaining about money, doesn't have enough, doesn't want to work harder, I'm counting on those people because they winnow themselves out of the picture. The odds are, and I've said it on nothing personal before, there's an 80% chance you are one of those people. That's fine. You've heard the rule. 20% of the people in your company do 80% of the work. 80% of the people do 20% and they end up being filtered through. But there's always that 80%. What you negotiate is your second year salary. When you're given a normal 2% raise, you say to your boss, listen, over the past 12 months, here are the examples of when you have used me to do more than what is in my job description. 
because during the course of the year, you've kept track of every last example. You say to your boss, I deserve more and I'm asking for more because I want to be and I have become your go-to person. And when you give me this raise, that is you acknowledging that I am different than the other people at my level. You are acknowledging that the work I do for you is valued more than the people you're paying who don't do what I do. They don't do it as often as I do it. They don't do it as well as I do it. And they don't do it as correctly as I do it. Do you have the guts to say that to your boss? 80% of you won't. Do you have the guts? Because as president of a team, do you know who got rewarded by me? The people with the guts. I had my office open. Anyone can make an appointment. Anyone can come visit me. We used to have, let's say, 40 interns a year. I would meet the interns. I would tell the interns, I will meet with every one of you. You go see my assistant, Beth, and make an appointment. And even if I have to postpone once or twice, I will see you. Do you think 100% of the interns took me up on that? No. Do you think when I spoke to other team presidents, they said, you do that? I don't have time for that. How do you have time for that? And the reason I have time for that is that when I was a young person at Morgan Stanley, when I was a young person in the business world, I wanted people to make time for me. And I vowed that as I got into higher and higher positions, I would make time for younger people always because they're scared, they're nervous, they're young, they're insecure. You walk in and you negotiate your second year salary, not your starting. Get in the door. And when you're in, do not let yourself leave. Well, this next point is not a question, but I just do need to point out something. Totally unrelated. But while I have you, you know, the movie Into the Wild, directed by Sean Penn with Emile Hirsch, Vince Vaughn's in that movie, Kristen Stewart's in that movie. One of my favorite movies, an incredible movie about Christopher McCandless, who goes into the deep bowels of Alaska and dies. Spoiler alert, dies, starves to death, has a disease from eating the wrong thing. Phenomenal movie. It was a book by uh, John Krakauer. Just recently, the Into the Wild bus, this is the bus where he lived. It's a real bus. People had been trying to go see the bus. I would love to have made the trek to go see that bus, which was in the wild. Literally, there's a bus, a school bus, a actual school bus where Christopher McCandless lived and where they filmed. That bus was removed from the Alaska park. Do you know why? Because people were dying trying to find the magic bus. They didn't pay attention to the movie They didn't pay attention to the moral and they thought it was cool to try to find the bus without having the proper supplies or knowledge. The reason I'm bringing this up right now is A, I love movies. B, I want you to see this movie. But C, this is a metaphor for people who go into something blindly thinking that they have the answers and that they know more than everyone else when there is no basis for that belief. Do you have anyone in your office who feels that way? Anyone in your family who feels that way? Watch for that. I'm more than happy to have experiences like going to find the bus 
except I know very well what the risks are. I know the parameters. I know the requirements. And I'm giving myself every opportunity to go right to the line, right to the edge. And then I'm going to have a satellite phone. I'm upset that bus is gone because now I'll never get to go see it. I want to stick with movies for a minute. Someone asked a question. What are the five best picture winners that will not hold up? That's great because during quarantine, as part of Nothing Personal, I had the quarantine best lifetime best picture challenge where I wanted you to watch the best picture winner from every year since the year you were born. I've watched, I was born in 1968. It is now 2020. I've watched every best picture except for Patton and I will watch Patton. And you should do it. There's amazing movies, even from when you were young that you wouldn't have seen that you'll see now and have great appreciation for. But it is worth saying, what are the five best picture winners that I don't think will hold up over time? Number five from 2015 is Spotlight. That is the movie about the pedophilia that's going on in the Catholic Church with Mark Ruffalo. It's a great movie. But if you're asking me, will that hold up as one of the all-time greats in 20 years? I do not think it will. Worst scene but not top of your list. Argo, 2012. Ben Affleck was not even nominated as best director. It won best picture. It's a good movie. It's nothing spectacular. It's fine. It's fine. That's all I'll say. Number three, two and one are a little more complicated and require a little bit more discussion. The number three movie that I don't think will hold up. It's from 1977. It's called Annie Hall. Annie Hall's with Diane Keaton and Woody Allen. Woody Allen has been accused of pedophilia. Woody Allen has denied sexual abuse of his children. He married his stepdaughter, Sunni Previn. Has been with her for years. They're all over Manhattan. I've seen them at dinners. I've seen them at Nick Games. Woody Allen is an incredibly talented filmmaker, a writer, a director, an actor. Annie Hall is a great movie. People won't want to watch it now because they will have a hard time separating the artist from the art. And I understand that. I wonder whether there's a way to watch older movies in the lens of today. Because you can't go back and watch Annie Hall as though you're back in 1977 and you didn't know anything about Woody Allen and no one knew anything about Woody Allen and he was young. But maybe watching it now, you can start to understand how Woody Allen became Woody Allen. Maybe you can appreciate his talent while holding his personal picadillos in complete contempt and having disdain for him in every way but I just don't think that will happen. So Annie Hall, I don't think holds up. Number two, 1989 was a movie called Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy starred Jessica Tandy, who won an actress, and Morgan Freeman as her chauffeur, an older white woman with an older black chauffeur. When I saw that movie in 1989 as a white child of privilege, I was, I don't know, 20 years, 21 years old. It was a great movie, and I didn't look at it any other way other than as a great movie. I wasn't racist then. I'm not racist today. I was not taught racism. 
I was taught to not be racist, quite the opposite. I didn't view driving Miss Daisy as a problem, which, by the way, may be the problem. So driving Miss Daisy has now gotten lost in something that maybe it should have been lost in back in 89. Maybe that's how we're measuring progress. The number one movie that will not hold up is from 1999. Best picture with Annette Benning, Mina Suvari, Wes Bentley, who's still acting in Yellowstone, which just premiered on the Paramount Network. You should check it out. Kevin Spacey, Chris Cooper. It's called American Beauty, directed by Sam Mendes, a very accomplished director. American Beauty won Best Picture because it was the best picture. It is a movie that is a must-see. But Kevin Spacey basically is a pedophile in the movie. And then Kevin Spacey in real life turns out to be a pedophile. Kevin Spacey is now persona non grata in Hollywood, as he should be. How do you come to grips with the usual suspects, American Beauty, House of Cards, all the different things, Baby Driver, all the different movies that Kevin Spacey has done? Are you now unwilling to watch Kevin Spacey movies? Or, like with Annie Hall, can you watch the movie, appreciate the art for what it is, but not appreciate the artist? There's a lot of art out there where I can appreciate the art and not the artist. There's a lot of artists who have paintings that are in museums, phenomenal, who had personal issues that were significant that would not be acceptable today. But their art is still in museums and I still look at it. That doesn't mean I'm condoning his behavior by any stretch. I just think I'm probably in the minority in that opinion. Probably more like 80-20 or 90-10. American Beauty 1999 is the number one movie, the number one best picture winner that I don't think will hold up. Thanks for that question. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
Okay, next question. Someone says, on nothing personal, you keep mentioning that MLB will not be the only league with labor issues. Can you further explain what you mean? So I've spent time on nothing personal defending Major League Baseball. I have gotten all over the owners. I am not sucking up to owners. I've gotten all over the players. I'm not sucking up to the players. But I've also complimented owners when it was warranted. I've complimented players when it is warranted. I've been very fair in my mind, in my evaluation of the past few months as Major League Baseball has worked to get ready to play. There has been a sea of negativity toward Major League Baseball. Anger, the billionaire-millionaire argument. Anger that baseball couldn't get it together and start playing earlier, which I told you on Nothing Personal was not going to happen under any scenario. Late July, I said August 1st, late July is as good as it's going to get. But I also told you that it's not just baseball. Why is that? Well, the National Basketball Association and the National Hockey League were halfway, if not three quarters way done, practically more. I think and the hockey had 10 or 15 games left. Basketball had 10 or 15 games left, and that's it in their regular season. Those players had been paid a majority of their salaries for the 2020 season when their leagues were shut down. Those owners had gotten a majority of their revenue from both TV and gate receipts before the seasons were shut down. The agreement between owners and players in the National Basketball Association came together much more quickly because their collective bargaining agreement that they currently have and they're currently operating under, that includes, by the way, salary cap, which baseball doesn't have, their agreement had provisions of what happens exactly in the case of a global pandemic. They had negotiated what steps would be taken, what salary relief would be required by owners to players, how it would work, how they would collaborate. There was a roadmap to labor peace. Furthermore, there was no need to have a labor fight because they were so close to the end of their season. They had a mutuality of interest to get the postseason played because there is a revenue share that is part of their collective bargaining agreement. The more revenue the owners make, the more money the players get as part of their salary because in basketball, there is a minimum and a maximum. Major League Baseball players do not want a salary cap. They don't want a revenue split because they think the owners are hiding revenue. In the NBA, you've got the same owners. Do you think Jerry Reinsdorf hides the baseball revenue but not the basketball revenue? He owns the Bulls and the White Sox. There is a system in place with independent auditors who make sure that the NBA and its owners are disclosing the revenue that they are bound to disclose under the collective bargaining agreement. The real problem may come next season when the salary cap goes down. Remember, Nothing Personal did an entire week about China. By the way, does that not seem like five years ago? 
when Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, made a comment about Hong Kong and the protesters, and all of a sudden, China said, see you later. And that was when the NBA was playing preseason games in China. How, if I said to you, what year did the NBA play its preseason in China? You'd be like, I don't know, maybe 2016, 2015. It was this year. OMG. So that was going to have an impact on the salary cap next year. And that was before COVID. So now you've got a situation where owners signed players to long-term deals. Take the Rockets with James Harden or Russell Westbrook. Assuming the cap would grow the way it had. And the reality is the cap is going to go down. And now you've got teams who will be over the cap and having to pay penalties who didn't budget to be either over the cap or have to pay those penalties. What will the owners do then? They're going to go to the players and say, we've got to reopen this collective bargaining agreement because we've got a problem. Oh, I didn't even mean to do this. Houston, we have a problem. NHL is going to have the same situation. NFL as well. Why has there been no labor argument with the NFL? Because right now the NFL is assuming they're going to be just fine. Fans and everything. They haven't had one change in their off-season routine other than the fact they had to go virtual from Roger's basement for the draft. That's Roger Goodell, the commissioner. They're assuming training camp at the end of July. They're assuming fans. I don't really agree. I believe there will not be anywhere near full capacity, if any, at any of the football games this fall. I believe the league will take a huge revenue hit, and I believe that will impact players, salaries, and will cause labor issues. So MLB is in a situation where they had to go first. And anytime you're first at something, anytime you're in the lead, remember last, I don't know if it was, whether this was the last mailbag episode or one of the nothing personal episodes, maybe it was just in my head where I talked about followers and leaders and the importance of both. And you have to know which you are and it's okay to be a follower or a leader. But when you're the leader of something, picture the, uh, you know, in bike, when you're bike riding, and people bike in a Peloton. People, the Peloton actually didn't used to be that indoor cycle that you do when you're watching TV. Peloton, I believe, is the word for a group of bikers. Now, Mikey, I may have this completely wrong, but I think a Peloton is when there's a group of riders and they're riding in this pack. Did you know that they keep switching off who's at the front of the pack? Because the front of the pack has the hardest job. Because he gets no drag, because when you're in the middle of the pack, it's the front of the pack who's protecting you from the wind, so you can actually pedal uh, less with less strain, if you will, and go faster. But when you're in the front, you've got the wind at your face, and you've got no one to protect you. The fact of the matter is that that is exactly what happens when you are a leader, that if you're leading the Peloton, guess sometimes what happens to your bike? It goes into a pothole. And the impact of that is everyone crashes behind you because they're on the tail of who the bike in front of them. MLB is at the head of the Peloton. You didn't think I landed that plane, did you, Mikey? I landed it. You're, are you feeling a little bit of cocos pain? I do these mailbag pods with Mikey. Mikey was involved in making nothing personal the success that it is. And I like 
when he thinks like Coca does that I will absolutely never return to my point. But I did. MLB is the leader. They are the lead of the Peloton. They hit a few potholes. They caused some crashes. I promise you, MLB will not be the only league with labor issues. Hope that helped answer your question. Next, someone said, what does it take for a small market team in any sport to return to prominence and stay there year after year? This is going to be a really fast answer. I get asked this all the time. I'm not sure I understand the question because it means that I haven't properly discussed how it works for teams. Teams have windows to win. When you're running a team, what you're doing is you're trying to keep your window open longer and keep the amount of time that your window is closed shorter. Teams go up and down. Big market teams have much longer windows of open, the ability to win. Small market teams have much smaller windows when they can win. Every team whose window is closed, who's not delusional, tries to rebuild as quickly as they can to return to prominence, as you so perfectly put in this question. So there is no difference between a small market team and a big market team in terms of how they try to return to prominence. The difference is that big market teams don't have to do it as often because they're not rebuilding as often. Let's just take the Cleveland Indians as they try to figure out how to stay competitive with Lindor. They've had to trade away players, including Corey Kluber, who's on Texas now, the Texas Rangers, who, by the way, will not be starting opening day. They gave that to Lance Lynn. Congratulations to Lance. But the Indians have to recognize that their window is now closed with this group of people, with this group of players. So when you have that understanding, you trade away the expensive players, you start building your core again, because for a small market team to win, you have to have a lot of players overperforming their contract, which means you need a lot of Pete Alonzo's making 600 grand and hitting 50 home runs. When Pete Alonzo is making $18 million, he may not be outperforming that. When he's making 600,000, he is. Aaron Judge at 8 million this year, if he stays healthy, he can outperform his contract. For Giancarlo Stanton to outperform his $30 million contract, he would have to have an MVP type season, which he's more than capable of because I've seen it up close. A small market doesn't have the same bandwidth for mistakes that a large market team has in its return to prominence. If you get it wrong with your prospects, take the Marlins. They traded away Ozuna, Stanton, Yelich, Gordon. If they got it wrong and their prospects they got back do not end up being overperforming players as young players, their return to prominence will be delayed because they'll have to start again. If they got it right, they will have an open window where they will try to sprinkle free agents around those players, much like we did in 03 with a Pudge Rodriguez. But that doesn't mean that their return to prominence 
will then be longer, which is to say it doesn't mean they will stay year after year, which is what you asked in your question. It is impossible because the players get older. As they get older, they make more. And you've got to make decisions. Even the Cubs have a decision upcoming when they've got Kyle Schwarber, Chris Bryant, and Javier Baez, all becoming free agents. Even the Cubs can't keep them all. They go out and sign other free agents, whether it's Darvish or Lester or Hayward. You can't keep everybody. Even the Cubs can't stay competitive year after year. The best example of a team who's been doing it for a lot of years right now is the Dodgers. So you'd say to me, are the Dodgers an example of a team who has not just returned to prominence, but stayed there, although they're a big market team? Or the Tampa Bay Rays are a small market team. They seem to be good every year. How do they stay there year after year? They don't. If you go back and look at the Tampa Bay Rays and their cycles, they've got cycles the same as other small market teams. What they've been better at is those cycles have been shorter in years than other cycles like the Marlins, let's say. You've heard me say nothing personal how jealous I am. Absolutely. They were unreal. They're still unreal. Their front office led by their owner, Stu Sternberg. Matthew Silverman. They used to have Andrew Friedman. It is a great question but it is unrealistic for you to think that your small market team, whether it's Pittsburgh, people are so upset in Pittsburgh, they're so upset at Bob Knight. What are you so upset about? You think he doesn't want to win? Believe me, he wants to win. You think he wants to write checks and that it's his job to write checks year after year? It's not, but it doesn't mean he doesn't want to win. But he also understands the realistic nature of the economics of baseball. The Pirates will not be competitive every year. Not going to happen. Take advantage of your team when they are, but love your team when they're trying. Next. It's a pretty personal question, but I want to answer it for you. You are very open about getting into baseball because of your family. What is it like working for your stepfather? There are many that's so that the question is, you are very open about getting into baseball because of your family. So what is it like working for your stepfather? I've been honest and I've always been honest. That's nothing personal. That is how we have a show. And that's why I hope you listen and download and watch even on the new YouTube channel. Because I'm going to tell you how it is. I was educated, had a, had a law degree. I had experience on Wall Street. I experienced running my own business. I had zero experience in baseball. I helped my stepfather buy the Expos by be acting as a lawyer and banker and advisor. He asked me to step in and help run the team. And I was very young, not deserving, but he knew that he could trust me and that I had the ability to learn. And over the next 18 years, I got damn good. And the reason I got good is I listened more than I spoke. I was always aware of what I didn't know. I never was short on confidence. And I always owned my position. I didn't try to pretend that Jeffrey wasn't my stepfather. Even after him, my mother got divorced in 2004. It's hard working with family. It's hard because when you 
have a boss you have to deal with outside the office, when those lines intersect, there is emotionality that gets involved. There is tension that is caused when you want to get away from it. When you want a stepfather and all you have is a boss. When you want a boss and then you get a stepfather. What we did better than most is we had very clear boundaries. And we didn't do it perfectly. But the boundaries we had is when it was family time, it was family time. When it was business time, it was business time. And we were very clear to other members of the family who may have misunderstood or been upset about the fact that I was working in baseball and they weren't. We were very clear that my job was not because I was his stepson, except for day one. After day one, I had to earn the right to be the president of a team every single day. If I took it for granted, hey, just because he's my stepfather, that I'm going to be the president of this team in perpetuity? Nope. We had arguments. We had discussions. I had to do things he wanted me to do that I didn't want to do like I'd have to do with any boss. There were times I got in trouble not because I was a stepson, because I had done things that he didn't like as the owner of the team. There were times when I thought I was not going to continue working for the team. There were times when I thought I would not get an, an extension or a new contract. There were times when I thought I would be terminated. There were times when I negotiated because I wanted more, more power, more money. If you go into work with your family, and you do not establish boundaries, you will have a problem. Now, what's interesting to me is that people seem to think that he and I were the only family working in baseball, stepfather, stepson, father, son. I I just guess people aren't paying attention. I guess people know that Fred Wilpon, the owner of the Mets, has his son, Jeff, as the co-owner and chief operating officer. I'm sure you know that the owner of the Twins was Carl Polad, and his son, Jim Polad, is now the owner. I'm sure you know that the old owner of the Kansas City Royals was David Glass, and his son, Dan, was his president. What about the Indians, with Paul Dolan is now the owner when his father was the owner? Hal Steinbrenner is the son of George Steinbrenner. Ted Lerner's 94 owns the Washington Nationals. His son, Mark Lerner, is the owner who runs the team. Bill DeWitt owns the St. Louis Cardinals. His son's the president. Peter Angelos owns the Angels, uh, owns the Orioles. His son's the president. Mike Gillich is now dead when he owned the Tigers. His son, Chris, was the president. We had a club within baseball. It was the family club. And we'd have plenty of conversations about it. We would talk to presidents who were not working for family members. They all thought that we had the greatest job security of all time, that it was smooth sailing. We all thought, my God, it must be so good not to have to work for your father because you must understand and have the boundaries. It's a wonder, no wonder people always say the grass is greener. How do you actually know the grass is greener to get to the other side and look at the grass? Because sometimes when you look at grass that looks greener, it's actually brown once you get there. And then when you get to the other side, you look back at your grass that you were pretty sure is brown. Turns out it's sort of green. That happens all the time. 
What's it like working for my stepfather? I'll tell you what it's like. It's business. It's nothing personal.